chapter 5. We are concluding this morning a third message in a mini-series on marriage. And as you've, we've seen this in marriage, uh, talking about the biblical view of marriage, the biblical foundations of marriage, we saw that God used this one phrase that's repeated four times in the Bible. It's repeated, it's told us to us in Genesis, when God sets up the first marriage, that for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his own wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Then Jesus, when he's discussing this in the, in the context of divorce and remarriage, um, questions about it, he says, from the beginning, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his own wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And then we see that, fra- that, that phrase used again here in the book of Ephesians, where we'll see um, the display of marriage. So we saw the definition of marriage when it was used in Genesis, and we saw the design of marriage used there. But here in Ephesians, we'll see the mystery where God uses this phrase to show us the display of marriage. So Ephesians chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 30, 22, and we'll read through the end of the chapter in verse 33. This is God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, as a man... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would use your word now. You would unleash it on us. Lord, would you change us in our thinking? And Lord, help us to see this grand design, the display you have for marriage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to just make a a big uh, admission here and confession. Um. And, and I'll see if anyone here is as, as bad as I am, okay? There are some things that are in the Bible that I don't like that are in the Bible. Is anyone else there? You ever read something in your Bible and you're like, I don't like that that's in the Bible. Okay. I want to show you one, okay? So if you go with me to Mark chapter 12, and verse 25, there's a question going on about 
marriage. And of course, it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees debating and trying to catch Jesus. And the, they come and they come with this trick question, right? I mean, this is kind of like, you know, um, you know, a hard one, you know, like kind of jeopardy for Jesus here, right? Um, and, and they give him this scenario of a woman who was married and her husband passes. And of course, as the custom was that the brother-in-law would take the wife and try to raise children and, uh, under the, the former husband's name and carry on his name. And, um, and, and they go, this, there's this woman that goes through a sequence. And this is, you know, a, a fictional story of, of this woman that uh, has gone through several of these brothers. She's outlived them all. You'd think at some point they would think, don't marry her because you're next, right? And, um, or as, um, well, who was the person they say that she always said to her husbands, I won't keep you long, you know? Um, but that, so they, uh, so they come to Jesus and they have this trick question and they say, um, Jesus, whose, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus says in verse 25, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And I don't like that that's in the Bible. Because I thought, well, in heaven, we're not going to be married. I really like being married. You know, I tell everybody if I knew marriage was going to be as good as it is, I would have started in second grade, right? <laughs> what do you think, David? Second grade, good time to get married? No, no, he doesn't want to get And uh, he's in fifth grade, so he, he wouldn't want, you know. And, um, I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, like, um, you know, Jamie had one semester of college left after when we got married and then went to grad school and I got better grades in grad school than I did in undergrad. And I think it's cause I was married, you know, I just wasn't as stressed out. I had someone to help be proofread papers and, you know, I mean, it, it, everything was as great, right? Um, I, I mean, I would rather fight with Jamie than be married to anybody else. I mean, it's that great, right? And, um, um, and, and when I think, well, we're not going to be in married that we're not going to be married in heaven. That's kind of a bummer, right? Um, give you a couple other weird marriage situations. Tell, tell a couple stories here. Um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, eh, not all of his theology was right, but I think his heart was right. And I think I'll see him in heaven. Um, he was engaged to Maria von Wenemir when he was hanged April 9th, 1945. He, had, he was 39 years old, which I'm going to be 39 this year. He was arrested in April of 1943, and he spent that time engaged. He wrote love letters from prison to her, but they never were married before he was hung. So this is 1943 to 1945. He had led the churches to protest what Hitler was doing in Germany and was imprisoned for it and ultimately hung. So this is the same time that here in the Northview section of Clarksburg, there was a group of Christians that started meeting in the Methodist church and then came up here to 16th Street to start a church that we know now as Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, about that time, there was a young man that was my grandfather who moved from his family farm in Ritchie County to take a job for the railroad in Clarksburg and rented a house over here in kind of 15th Street area 
and about that time and that this church was starting and all that's going on and about and during that time frame so this church started in August of 1945 April of 1945 um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's hung and never marries Maria about a decade earlier there are missionaries to China A young couple that went to Bible college at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, the school named for Dwight L. Moody. And as often, two kids in Bible college meet and marry, and Bible colleges are kind of like shoe factories. They bring them in, mend their soles, and send them out in pairs, you know. (laughs) And um, John and Betty Stam meet and marry. Their, their wedding in 1933 is performed by R.A. Torrey. And they go to be missionaries to China. And there's a civil war between the Chinese Nationalists and the Chinese Communist Party. And in 1934, this young married couple were beheaded by the Communists with their young baby hidden in a blanket with $10 in it, watching from nearby. Geraldine Taylor, who's the daughter-in-law of the Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, published this story in a magazine recounting that event of John and Betty Stam. Never was there, never was that little one more precious than when they looked their last on their baby sweetness. And as they were roughly summoned the next morning and led out to die, being speaking to them with their baby that they left in the blanket with $10. Painfully bound with ropes, their hands behind them, stripped of their outer garments, and John barefooted, he had given Betty his socks to wear, they passed down the street where he, he was known to many. And while the Reds shouted their ridicule and called the people to come and see the execution, and like their master... They were led up a little hill outside the town. And there in a clump of pine trees, the communist harangued the unwilling onlookers to terror, stricken to outer protest. But no, one broke the ranks. The doctor of the place and a Christian, he expressed the feelings of many when he fell on his knees and pleaded for the life of his friends. Angrily repulsed by the Reds, he still persisted until he was dragged away as a prisoner to suffer death when it appeared that he too was a follower of Christ. John had turned to the leader of the band asking mercy for this man. And when he was sharply ordered to kneel and the look of joy on his face afterwards told the unseen presence with them as the spirit was released. Betty was seen to quiver, but only for a moment. Bound as she was, she fell to her knees beside him. A quick command a flash of a sword, which mercifully she did not see, and they were reunited. When I hear stories of marriages like that, here's this young couple with a little baby that give their lives to go be missionaries, and they're killed like that by communists. And you hear about a, a, a young couple that are engaged to be married that want to serve God with their life, like Diedrich Bonhoeffer and He's hung before they even get to be married. You're like, was that a happy marriage? Is that what you were, people were toasting to at John and Betty Stam's reception? 
Or when you look in a passage like we looked at earlier there, that when Jesus says in the resurrection, there's neither married, we're neither married nor given in marriage. And we're like, I don't really like that. And I don't like that, right? But you know why I, I realized why that bothered me? That I didn't like that the Bible said that in the resurrection, we're neither married nor given in marriage. Or why when I hear stories like that, that I'm like, well, what kind of marriage is that? And you know why? Because I didn't realize, I didn't see the purpose that God had for marriage planned from the beginning. What he had planned for it to display. And that's what I want to introduce you to today. today. And so we've introduced in this series, these three messages on marriage, by applying that time management principle of putting the big rocks in the jar first. And by that we want to say we want to put the big rocks of marriage in first because your marriage is different than mine and everybody's marriage is different and you can look look on the the book cases of the bookstores and see all these different things and and how-to manuals if you are exactly like their temperament and background and shadow and everything and her and and the spouse is the same as the exact one as the author's spouse but but if not you're just going to get into all these weeds and different ideas so we want to put the big rocks of the biblical foundations for marriage in the jar and so the first one we saw was the definition of marriage and then secondly the design of marriage and then thirdly today the display of marriage and so um so why is this so important for us because we what we want to do is we want to elevate our view of biblical marriage i didn't say traditional marriage i said biblical marriage um for god's glory because i believe it's a way to help us understand the gospel and i think that the gospel also helps us understand marriage because we are all theologians, practically. We, we all are practical. We all apply. I mean, what you think about God determines everything about you. And this is one of the reasons why your biblical worldview is so important. That's why we harp on that when it comes to education and things like that. A biblical worldview and why that's so important to integrate biblical worldview in every aspect of learning is because every single one here, every person in this room, sees the world through a lens, like, like I have contacts in right now, and I'm seeing some folks that have glasses on. We're all seeing the world through some type of filter. Like, I don't see things well without my contacts in, and you might not see things well without your glasses on. And if your glasses are tinted, you see the world tintedly. You know, you ever been driving? You think, man, it just seems really gray today. And then you're like, oh, I have my sunglasses on. You, didn't, you forgot about that, or rose-tinted glasses, or yellow-tinted glasses, or whatever it might be. We all see the world... Through a worldview, we all look at the world. There's, there's no such thing as objectivity, okay? There's no such thing as object. We all look at everything with presuppositions uh, based upon on something. It's why you see so many, so you can have the same study with statistics and you'll find 500 different interpretations of why that is because we all see data and everything from a worldview. Um, and Christians are just admitting that we have a presupposition that guides our worldview, um, and so um, your worldview is shaped by many things, the culture around you, your gender, your upbringing, your present situation. But the greatest impact that, ha- that on your worldview is what you believe about God, because that'll show how you believe you got here. from creation, um, what you think the ultimate meaning or purpose in life is, and and especially what happens after life. Your worldview indicates all of this. 
And Dave Harvey put it this way. He said that what we believe about God determines the quality of our marriage. So we're all theologians at the altar because God has this big picture of marriage in mind. The scripture pictures marriage in the gospel. Um, I mean, the whole Bible really is about a marriage. There's this grand theme. I mean, I mean, the Bible starts off with this married couple in a garden messing things up, right? Uh, so, so, so a dysfunctional marriage from the beginning. And the Bible ends with a picture of a wedding feast in heaven with a bride and the groom being Christ, the bridegroom. And so there's this grand theme that God said, well, what you view, whether you're married, single, divorced, whatever your situation is right now, um, marriage, God wants us to have this big view of marriage because it has so many implications in it. The gospel is the foundation of all relationships, especially um, when we see in marriage because that's probably the most intimate of relationships. Okay, so um, this is why it's important. Um, um, so... The first week we saw on the foundation of marriage, it's kind of you're looking at a house building this, this argument for a biblical marriage. The foundation, the footings is this definition, the de- definition of marriage that marriage and the definition we gave is a lifelong covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. So lifelong covenant companionship between one man and one woman. Um, one man, one woman united in a covenant we talk about how important that was. There are so many things there that God creates mankind. God creates two equal yet distinct genders. And this is a huge battlefield in, in, our, in our society today. Um, and so uh, God creates marriage between one man and one woman. So marriage is God's idea. He created it. It's his institution. We can't touch it. Church can't change it. Government can't change it. People can't decide they want to change it. God, it's God's institution. He is the designer. He is the owner. It is his institution. Governments can recognize it. Churches can celebrate it. But it is God's institution. Okay? Man didn't invent it. God did. God doesn't, man doesn't create it. A justice of the peace, a civil judge, a preacher. No one creates it. God created marriage. And so, um, and, and he creates it as a covenant. It is not just a contract. It's more than that. It's a covenant. I mentioned um, uh, uh, Tim Keller's new book on marriage has a great chapter on that. Um, and so, um, that, so if, when it's rooted, when your marriage is rooted in this foundation of covenant, it will weather storms, as the vows say, as long as you both shall live. So it's God's idea. So when we attend a wedding, we are witnessing what God does. That's why the passage says, what God has put together, let not man put asunder. It's not a human institution. God designed it. That is the definition. Um, Humans don't have a right to change it. Um, Marriage was not just invented by God. It is owned. It belongs to God, Dave Harvey said. God created it before the fall, before human government, before the church. This is the basis of marriage. This is the definition of marriage. And so then we move a little bit farther that on that foundation that, the, that it is rooted in that gospel idea of covenant. On that foundation, you start to build a structure. 
And that's where the design of marriage comes in, that God has had this blueprint that we looked at uh, the last time we were together. The blueprint of marriage is we see in the passage in Genesis 2, Matthew 19, Mark 10, and here in Ephesians 5, for this cause shall man leave father and mother and cleave to his own wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That in marriage, math works this way, one plus one equals one. That God had this, so the three building blocks and this foundation of marriage, this design of marriage, this blueprint of marriage is leave father and mother, cleave to your own spouse, and weave to become one flesh. Oneness is that immediate goal of marriage, oneness. And failure in one of those areas is the source of most of our marital problems. Most of the time when we talk about our marriage problems, if I'm honest, if you're honest, when we talk together, when you issues, it's leaving problems, cleaving problems, or weaving problems. Uh, that not leaving father and mother, not cleaving together, not becoming one. Um, and so that we have that. We can, there's a lot of application to that. So then what we want to do now is transition then to this final. So we've seen this definition of marriage and this design of marriage. But when, you, but when you're building something, you have the foundation and the blueprints, and you're starting to put that structure. In the end, there's a picture that that structure is intended to display. And that's where we want to come today when we look in this passage in Ephesians. And so at the end there of the passage, there's this wonderful phrase after this idea of uh, roles of husbands and wives uh, rooted in this idea of, so the Ephesians starts off with this wonderful picture of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ and uh, it being adopted into his family and by grace through faith alone in the gospel and in how that gospel works out and this mystery of the gospel is revealed. And then when we come to chapter four, he talks about how we're united together in this body of Christ. There's one body, one faith, one baptism that we're all together in this new life we have. And in this new life in the gospel that's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're to walk in love and be imitated of God as dear children. So we come to chapter 5. He talks about the negatives of this, that we're supposed to be putting off certain things like sexual immorality and um, uh, crude joking and all these things. They shouldn't be in this filthiness, should not be named amongst those that are part of this one body, one faith, one baptism. And then how this gospel is going to flesh out in their most intimate relationships is with children, being obedient to parents, us submitting to one another, addressing one another. So we're going to do it by not being drunk with wine, but by addressing or admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, congregational singing to Christ, giving thanks in everything, and then submitting to one another, serving one another, and then here's how that's going to look in the home with wives, husbands and children to their parents and all this comes in verse 32 i want you to put your eyes on that it says this mystery is profound or it says this is a great mystery this mystery is profound that mega uh, Mysterion, great mystery, where you see that in the authorized, is profound. But, or and, I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church, or I speak concerning Christ and the church. 
So here's where this comes. There's this foundation. There's this, this, this blueprints of this design of marriage. But this structure was intended to display a relationship with Christ and the church. Now, when you see the word mystery in the Bible, it, it's not like, um, like, like, a, uh, like, a, like something that was, was like, you know, uh, it, the secret code that, um, you know, you had to dig in and, you know, count all the hairs or count every 30-second word and the commas split up by 17 verses or, you know, it's not like that. It, what, what mystery is in the Bible is something that God had intended for, from the beginning but didn't reveal or, or, or in special revelation show us, tell us this is what it is. So basically what he's saying is that God from the beginning, when, when God brought Eve to Adam and said that it's not good for man to be alone, then he took Eve and brought her to Adam and said these two should become one flesh, go and you know, multiply the earth and um, be fruitful and multiply and brought them together as one, that in that, God had in mind a picture of his relationship with his church from the beginning. And, and that and it was such a big deal to God. And Paul's saying this is what this was supposed to display all along. So the picture, it, it was to picture God's relationship. Marriage is patterned after God's covenant commitment to his church. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. The true people of God. This is in Matthew 9. Paul's calling the betrothed and erring church, the bride, to her. Like, um, they, they, in 2 Corinthians, I, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Christ prayed for his, paid for his bride with his own blood. Um, this is where Christ would say when we take the Lord's Supper in, like in Luke 22, this is the new covenant in my blood. That the highest meaning and purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and the church on display. So it's a showcase. I mean, it's a showcase. It's God's showcase for covenant-keeping grace. It's like when you, have a, when you showcase a trophy, you put it in a trophy case or a gun case, and, and you, and you want to showcase that thing. You want to put it out there on display for everyone, a monument that you put in front of your courthouse or whatever. You want to display it. And God, from the beginning, had a design to display his covenant-keeping relationship with the church in marriage now trophies get and monuments get torn down and marred and rained on and distorted but it doesn't mean that the purpose of that monument is taken away marriages on this side of eternity get marred and messed up but it doesn't mean that god's plan for them was any different so the gospel the mystery of marriage, the secret of marriage is that it's a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. It means it was not known fully. We don't fully know marriage until we know Christ. That the true purpose of marriage from the beginning is revealed here in Ephesians. <clears throat> Joseph uh, Jeffrey Bromley said it this way, As God made man in his own image. So he made earthly marriage in the image of his eternal marriage with his people. 
Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel is that Jesus died for sinners, that he made a covenant that he paid for. He paid a great price with his own suffering on the cross. He took an imperfect bride and purchased her with his own blood and covered her, covered her with garments of his own righteousness. And he would end when he leaves on this earth. And he says, I am with you even to the end of the age. Or he would say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And even the promise of his second return is parallel very much with the image. (coughs) Excuse me. It's going to hit me, I know. Um, and even the image of Christ of Christ's return is couched for us in that image of a of a Jewish wedding. In a Jewish wedding, the bride, the groom would go and go to prepare a place or to build a house, whether that be a separate or an addition to the parents' house. And then he would get the the wedding party together, and they would go back and they would announce with a trumpet. And a shout, and he would go back and receive the bride. And so you see the stories there of the bridegroom and the virgins that would have their lamps trimmed, waiting on the bridegroom to come in the night. And you see that picture, and you see that even like when Christ comes. The Bible tells us there's a trumpet and there's a shout, and he's coming back to receive his bride unto himself. This is all this grand picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's institution. He is the doer. He is the designer for the purpose of displaying his covenant love for his people. And so some ways we need to apply this to ourselves is that staying married is not as much about staying in love as it is in keeping covenant. Christ will never leave his bride. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when she is backslidden and unfaithful. Even when you go away from Christ and you're not reading your Bible and you're sinning against him and you've missed out and you've backslidden away from the relationship with the community and the church or whatever, he's still faithful to you. And this is why divorce and remarriage are such a big deal in the New Testament and why it's debated amongst churches and talked so much when it comes to uh, officers in the church or whatnot. It's because it isn't just about covenant, about breaking a contract. It's about misrepresenting a relationship with Christ with his church. There's a covenant in the garden. Adam and Eve are together and the Bible says they're naked and not ashamed. They didn't look on each other's imperfections. They had no imperfections. And then when sin comes, they realize they're naked and they need to be covered. And they try to cover their nakedness with themselves, with their own self-effort, with fig leaves. And there's a lot of people out there trying to cover the shame of their own sin with lots of fig leaves today. Fig leaves of social media filters, fig leaves of prosperity and positions and fig leaves of religious works and things like this. But none of that worked. God had to make clothes for them. And this is one of the reasons it's to go back, since we're coming into the summer season, that clothes testify to the glory that we've lost, that we've lost the glory of imperfection. We, there is a shame. That's why there's a sense of shame and nakedness. And so nudity, someone said, is rebellion against a moral reality nudity is a rebellion against a moral reality that clothes were meant to direct attention to what is not under them 
right? And this is the essence of the new covenant, that Jesus passes over the sins of his bride. The Passover, blood there, passed over, the angel would pass over the family and let the child live. That The new covenant is that he passes over us, our sins of his bride. This makes the doctrine of justification and the gospel, the heart of what marriage it drives it. This is one of the reasons why Christians are not to be yoked together with an unbeliever, unequally. Shouldn't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. That's why marriage of a Christian to a non-Christian should not be done. And regardless of examples you may have heard of, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Marriage is not a good evangelistic tool, ladies or guys. Don't think, well, you know, he'll get saved at some point, right? God does that sometimes, but that's not God's plan. It's not to be unequally yoked. So the foundation of covenant-keeping love between a man and a woman is the unbreaking covenant between them and God. Um, Their fellowship is found upon Christ and the alien righteousness we have together. Um, um, uh, A couple of Dietrich Bonhoeffer quotes on marriage. Um, letters and papers from prison. He said, their fellowship is found solely upon Jesus Christ and his alien righteousness. <clears throat> he said this way, that in a word, live to, for, together in the forgiveness of your sins, for without it, no human fellowship, least of all marriage, can survive. As you give the ring to one another and have now received a second time from the hand of the pastor, so love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God. And his, as God, above man. So high are sanctity, sanctity, the rights, and the promises of love. It is not our love that sustains the marriage. But from now on, the marriage that sustains our love. Bonhoeffer is saying of love that it's not love that keeps a marriage sustained. It's the marriage that sustains the love. It's the covenant there. So the highest meaning and purpose of marriage is to put on display the covenant relationship of Christ with his church. So a couple points. Um... That, that marriage is the mystery. The gospel is the mystery or the secret of marriage. The secret mega mysterion. That, that this, this secret of marriage is that it displays Christ. So as I mentioned before, um, I want to put this quote. There's a quote, a Tim Keller quote, if they can put that on there. It says that the, the gospel helps us understand marriage and marriage helps us understand the gospel. And there's a two-way thing there. That the gospel helps us understand how marriage is supposed to work and marriage helps us understand the gospel. There's kind of a, a cycle. That's Tim Keller. And, and what that means is that the gospel helps us understand marriage. So if you look at society, I mean, so, so the old view of marriage, you know, people would, you know, bash it and say it was, you know, um, you know, social construct, a way of property, or, or, or all these things, and these uh, domineering and rules. So we were unshackled from that. And so then, so the modern idea of marriage is like, you know, uh, where we can find individuals find, you know, a place to satisfy those, all their desires or to find ultimate fulfillment that someone else is going to give fulfillment or happiness in me, or I'll find that happiness and joy or fall in love, whatever it might be. But that's not what the gospel is. So, and, and then they wonder why, and we wonder why our marriages fall apart or why people are delaying marriage or whatnot, because, um, 
that husbands should do for their wives what Christ has done for the church to bring he gave himself for us. So marriage only works. Marriage only works when you see it as self-giving, not self-getting. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is God giving for God so loved the world that he gave. It's not going to work when you see it as, well, what do I get out of this? The secret is that the gospel and marriage explain one another. And if you don't see this, it's going to result in so many different things. And you can see the categories of marriage problems. And in your history, my history, friends and family we may have known, it might be a young couple that go into romance. Just, you know, they have these uncontrolled desires and, and, and they think marriage is the way they're going to have all those uncontrolled desires fulfilled. If we can just get married, then everything's going to be okay, right? It'll legitimize everything. Well, that's not about God. It's about themselves. And you know what happens? Two, three years later, Split up. Or a married couple clashing about the roles in the marriage. Fighting about who's in charge of what and what and who and things like this. And um, Well, I know that the Bible said this, but you know what works for us? We've had that and we've had that. You know, I've, I've, I've counseled couples. Well, well, in our marriage, she plays this role and he plays that role and that's what works for us. And you're like... Oh, sorry, I guess God didn't realize that, you know, in this, you know. Um, um, and the problem with that is it's not about God first. That's all this for us type idea. Or families torn apart because of divorce when, when both decide that their personal needs are more important than what God has put together. Well, I'm not fulfilled, she's not fulfilled, I want her to be happy, I want, he wants, she wants me to be happy, and we're both going to be happy if we just go a different way and have da 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 da, da. Well, it was never about your happiness. It was never about you being fulfilled or whatever. So you see it as God first in the gospel, then, man, it makes it work. Christ is the reference point of all of it. And you know, if you look through here in Ephesians at all those different, um, all those those statements that are those um, those commands, those imperatives. those propositions that we're supposed to obey and follow, what's underlying them, like we've said, that the gospel is the reference point of everything in the Christian life. It's not the starting point, it's the reference point. So if we go through even the commands and the instructions for us about marriage, Christ and the gospel is underlying all of it. So a few examples of that. When it says there in verse 22, to submit, it says it this way, as to the Lord that it makes this reference point of our relationship with Christ. Or to love, verse 25, as Christ loved the church. Did the church respond to that love in a great affectionate way? No. What did they do, those that Christ loved? What did they do? How did they respond? They killed him. And they denied him. His closest followers say, I never knew the man. And so, husband, next time you buy flowers or suggest a restaurant and it's kind of poo-pooed on or whatever, you're like, at least she didn't kill me. I mean, that's what Christ, the, the church did to Christ. At least she didn't say, I never knew that guy. She might have wanted to. I don't know who that guy is there. I don't know. What is he wearing? 
And the husband can be, we can be all hurt. Oh, I'm not going that again. It's the last time I get flowers for her. See if that, no, 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 no. What if Christ had that attitude? No. Um, nourish and cherish. Verse 29. What's the motivation? Just as Christ does the church. Um, and I think if you see these as rooted in the gospel, Neither one of these, none of these commands are ones to bristle against. And I think deep down, this is what we all long for. Even those that are the hardest core anti-roles in marriage uh, long to be treated the way the Bible calls the other spouse to treat them. And so the roles here, these commands reverse the effects of the fall. Think about the effects of the fall is that this man is going to go his own way and is super selfish, pursuing what his own gratification, and, that the, and, and when God said of Eve that she will, um, her desire would be towards her husband, or that, that anti, you know, you know idea, that these commands reverse the effects of the fall. And that's a, it's a picture for that in the gospel we see this, this little way of the beginning of the restoration of all things. That the gospel restores what was marred. That those roles, the roles in marriage that God has in the Bible are not rooted in the fall. They're not even rooted in culture. I want you to note that. It's not well in... To, in Paul's culture, when he writes that, this is kind of how it works. So he's, he's and this is what I, I, I've heard people this week. Uh, uh, well, Paul was, when he was speaking of those things about women's roles in the church, he was pastorally speaking to just one particular situation in one particular church. And that doesn't really apply to any of us today, right? No. Because even when he says this, he goes back for this cause. And he quotes Genesis. It's not rooted in the fall. It's not rooted in culture. It's not rooted in a particular time. It's rooted in the creation order in God's design to display a picture of his covenant relationship with the church. So these roles are rooted in the purpose of displaying the unchanging gospel dynamics of Christ's relationship to the church and the church's relationship to Christ. And that is that the church is the bride of Christ that Christ planned marriage to be like this from the beginning when bringing Eve to Adam he had in his mind the relationship of his relationship with the church and that's why it says this is a great mystery or this is profound marriage the profound mystery of marriage is that marriage is to be a reminder a living parable of what Christ did to redeem his people forever. And that's why even the people that are the most anti-marriage people love to see and share a clip of an old couple that's been married for 50, 60 years on Facebook. And they think that's so cute and they love it. You know why? Because deep down we all know that that's a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. This never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love that sacrifices, that doesn't get old, that grows old together. And that the church described in the scriptures as the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of God, 
They are the bride of Christ. And I, I want you to get this. So the church is described as the people of God. We see that in 2 Corinthians. We see that in 1 Peter. I want to show you something about the church being... So this is a profound... This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the bride of Christ... Yeah, I want to dig that that idea because sometimes we split that up and we say, okay, the church is the bride of Christ, but what about Israel? I thought God said Israel was part of what, what was the you know Yahweh was a spouse to Israel, or you know what about this? And what do you do that for the future? Even with some end times thinking, I want you to go. This is cool. This is super cool. Now go to Revelation, okay? Revelation chapter nineteen. Um. This really kind of knocked my socks off and made me think a lot about different things, uh, about prophecy and stuff like that when I saw this. Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. Verse 6, it says, it announces there, maybe your Bible goes to the heading, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then it says, and then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah for our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So, dun da 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 And his bride has made herself ready. So you can hear in the background in the subtext there, Okay? And has granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And it goes on and talks about the the rider on a white horse. And then we come to chapter 20, and you see about this thousand years or a millennium. Thousand. And then you see this twenty chapter twenty one, begin in verse nine. The new Jerusalem. And then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the lamb, the wife of the lamb. Okay, so now we're getting the the glimpse of this bride. The doors have opened, the music's playing, she's ready to walk the aisle. Let's look and see who she is, what she looks like. It says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east gates, and on the north gates, and on the south gates, and on the west gates, and on the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so I want you to note here that when you see this bride described, that there is representation for the twelve tribes of Israel and the apostles of the church. So I think that there's a, a sense in which that the church is the the link between the believers in the new covenant and the believers of the old covenant, that we are all the people of God. Together is the bride of Christ. And this highlights for us that there is one means of salvation 
throughout all ages, Christ and his atoning work that we receive by faith alone. The people of God, the bride of Christ. And so, marriage pictures God's covenant. Marriage is patterned after God's covenant commitment to his church. And as Piper said it this way, that the meaning of marriage is the display of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his people. So the highest meaning and purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and the church on display. And so a few ways we can apply this as we close. And that is to see marriage about, as about God and not about us. That it's bigger than you and it's bigger than me. It's bigger than whatever the petty thing that you're squabbling about right now is. There's something bigger than that. And um, there's so many ways, I mean, there's, I mean you, could, you could literally do a whole seminar about that. Um, but another application, I think, is this. Because it is to picture a relationship with Christ and his church, we would be remiss if we didn't say that the things that make up a wedding and the things that make up that relationship, I think also, identif- if they are to point us to our role as the bride towards Christ in the marriage that Christ, the church, has with the bride... Um, Do you think about when there's a wedding, there's a few different things. There's an identity that comes. Usually, you know, you either hyphenate or adopt a last name. Usually there's some type of reception of bringing them into the family, reception after the wedding is performed. There's often a documentation that takes place, right? Of signing a name, maybe changing it and getting a license. Um, And you might say, uh, and, and, and so when there is that wedding, if there is to people, hey, I want to be married, but we just don't want to let the state know about it. So we're all kind of like, whoa, what's going on? Or, hey, we're going to marry each other, but I really don't want uh, people to know that. And I'm just going to keep it like on Facebook. We're just going to keep saying we're single and not going to change names or anything like that. Is that OK? And, you know, this is this ring thing. I mean, that's not in the Bible. I mean, that's kind of just culture. So we don't want culture to tell us what. And so we're just going to be married, but not do any of those things. How do you think that marriage is going to last? No, you're like, I mean, how many of you girls would be okay with that? Hey, I'll marry you, but I don't want anybody at work knowing we got, I got married to you, right? And we're just going to keep this. You, you know, things like identity, commitment, reception, documentation. So if those things all apply in physical marriage, how does that apply when it comes to us as the church and relationship? And, and, I'm, and I'm going I'm to go on a limb here and just extrapolate it. I think all of those things, I think, are important in our relationship with the bride. That we want to, hey, I want to identify with the body of Christ. I want the, what was invisible, I want it to be visible. And the body of Christ is both invisible, that there's an invisible universal body of Christ, but there's also a visible representation of the body of Christ in the local church. This is why it's important for Christians to be identified in the local church, to, to go to a local church, to be a part of it, to be committed there. There's also even, in a marriage, sometimes there's some dot and sign a document, are you still married? Yes, you're married. If your name's not on the roll of a church, are you still a Christian? Yes, but why not? Why not? Why do you not want to have your name on a roll? What's the big deal? And usually if there's a husband that says, yeah, I want to be married to you, I just don't want anyone to know it by having a ring on my finger. Usually there's ulterior motives involved. 
And so, man, we see in our day, and I, I am so thankful to be an heir and a recipient of the evangelical movement of the late 1800s, early 1900s, the whole 20th century, and reminding us that you are not a Christian because you go to church, and that it's an individual personal relationship with Christ by means of which you're saved. But what I think we've lost in that emphasis is that we've emphasized so much that you don't have to be part of the church, that the church isn't how you come to know Christ, but that we've... That we've given people a byproduct thinking they can be Christians without the church. And if you go back to the, the, the doctrinal statements of yesteryear in the 1500s and the Westminsters, that is the, the, the normal means by which you identify that is the local church. I mean, ba- salvation and baptism, all those things are, ident- are local church type things. And so this idea that we have in our modern day of these lone, several different types of Christians, lone wolf Christians, that I'm kind of, you know, a lone ranger and I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. And that's a satellite Christians that I'm just going to like sit at home and watch my favorite podcast preacher, which is a better preacher than me. I totally get that. But you know what? You need to like be with real people. Um, as part of it, or the parachurch Christians, you know, like, well, I don't really do that, but, you know, I'm always going to go to, you know, and I love campus ministries, and I love camps, and I love parachurch ministries, but they don't replace the church. Or the disgruntled Christians that are like, oh, you know, church was bad, they messed up, they did this, they did that. It's like, you know what? I'm a lousy husband sometimes, but my wife's still with me. And, and you know what? There was one time a long time ago, and it's never happened since, that she made a meal that wasn't that great. But I didn't leave, you know? You can ask her about split pea soup one time. And um, it was like, what, maybe 13 years ago? And that's like, other than that, that's the last time. Everything else has been awesome. But, you know, or there's, you know, or there's the whole, you know, the Bible doesn't teach church membership. Blah, blah, blah. There's these, all these different parachurch, disgruntled, whatever. Man, I'm telling you, if we're going to be responsive like, like the bride of Christ, I think these are all important things, to be connected, to be the bride, to be submissive to Christ. Uh, so anyway, um, I got that in there for you. Um, I think these are some good responses we can have to this great truth. There's so many application things, and I, and I could just keep going on and on and on, and we're like, yeah, we know you could. But um, I think we need to stop there. But I want, I want us to make sure that we end this series uh, reminding ourselves that this big idea, the big rocks that are in our jar of marriage, is that God has said he has designed it to be a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. I'm not saying there aren't passages in the Bible about exceptions and how sin messes up things. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying this is God's design, and that and that he he, he and then that was his definition. His design is that it's leave, cleave, and weave. That's the blueprint. But once this structure is built, the ultimate display of it was to be a trophy case for His covenant relationship with His people, the church. And that's what it's about. So the gospel explains marriage to us and marriage explains the gospel to it. I thought there's no better way to say it than that. Let's pray. Father, this is a profound and great mystery and it is so deep and so personal and yet so applicable and there's so many things, Lord. I pray that uh, in the feeble attempts I've had to explain these things that you would help us to understand not my explanations but what the bible says 
and that we would live it, what, no matter what our marital circumstances are right now, that we would encourage our children and grandchildren towards a biblical view of marriage, that we'd encourage our, our, our single uh, brothers and sisters and those that are newly married or looking to marriage, that we would see this plan. And Lord, those that are married, that they would see this covenant being the, at the foundation of their relationship and that there is a high and holy calling that they have on them to, to, to picture your relationship with your church to lovingly submit and to selflessly give to the point of death in love. Lord, we um, ask that you would help us practically be a church of solid marriages and uh, that would honor marriage. Lord, help us to not do that in a, in a political way, but just in a loving, biblical, gospel-centered way. Lord, I ask that you would um, give grace to... Um, those that might be struggling with some of the things that were said, that we would we would go to the word, Lord, that we would hear these things in love and not in harshness. Um, Lord, I pray that you would um, give grace to those that are struggling in marriages right now, um, or that you, you, the those that are maybe married to an unbeliever, that this is still part of that picture, and even in you even say as a uh, the response of one to the other might be a means by which you use to draw them to salvation and lord i i pray that this would just you would use these words this passage uh for eternal purposes lord for the one that does not know christ lord i pray that you would let them know that they are invited to be a part of the bride that they're invited to it that they would believe they'd repent of their sins and believe on christ We pray this in his name. Let's keep heads bowed and eyes closed. I just want us to respond in prayer and then we're going to sing together.